0: Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind-the-scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it.
1: Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion, and I'm here with Dr. Jovan Hill, Director of the Mississippi Entomological Museum and Assistant Research Professor at Mississippi State University. He's here today to tell me about his paper, published in issue 1165 of ZooKeys, in which he describes seven new species of grasshoppers from Central Texas. Welcome, Jovan. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: So to start us off, um, listeners are probably at least generally familiar with grasshoppers. Um, but can you tell us what drew you to them and how you arrived at this project?
2: Oh, wow. Um, well, so when I was an undergraduate, uh, I worked for a postdoc and he encouraged me to do my own project um, that he would kind of help guide me through. And he worked on tritrophic level Uh, interactions. So herbivores, plants, and predators. And myself being from Mississippi, I came to Starkville, uh, where Mississippi State University is. And we have actual prairies here around Starkville. And growing from Mississippi, I had no idea we had grasslands here, natural grasslands here in the southeast. And so it just fascinated me. And I wanted to work in them. And You know, insects are incredibly easy to work with um, in terms of doing sampling and whatnot compared to vertebrates. And so we did a a project looking at grasshoppers, true bugs, spiders and plants in these prairie remnants. And uh, I started using Dan Otti's Grasshoppers of North America books to identify my grasshoppers and coming over to the, the entomology museum to kind of check my IDs. And, um, and of course, on on all the taxes, but grasshoppers are what stuck. They, I don't know, something about them I just liked. Catching grasshoppers is is a lot of fun. Dan's books made identifying them super easy. And um, it just kind of stuck. And then one day I was over here at the museum identifying my grasshoppers and the director at the time, Dr. Richard Brown said, hey, do you want to go to graduate school? And I didn't have anything else going on. So I said, sure. And of course that was to work on ants. I did my master's on ant community ecology. Um, but he always still encouraged me to work on grasshoppers and his major professor uh, from Arkansas, Dr. Tommy Allen, uh, had retired up to the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia where Dan Audie was. And so I kind of got an in with Dan and, and wound up uh, doing a, a tour with Dan, taking Dan on a tour of the Southeast uh, in 2009 to work on a species group, and by the end of the the trip, he'd given me the group to work on for my PhD project. So my PhD work was on uh, grasshopper taxonomy. Yeah, and it still amazes me to this day how amazing it is that I used Dan's books to uh, identify these grasshoppers when I was an undergraduate, and now. I have an NSF-funded project working with him to write the third volume of those books. It's it's just it blows my mind still that how dumb lucky I, I am. I guess
1: <laughs> that's fantastic. And um, yeah. I'll I'll ask you some questions about it later. But something I really like loved about your paper is that in many ways it it reads like a textbook. It's really user friendly, and uh, I I know that people will be able to use it to identify the grasshoppers that you've described. Yeah.
2: So that was something I kind of set out to do this paper and and it was really weird because I had a lot of fun in the field collecting these grasshoppers. It was a uh, you know, we spent I don't know four summers or so and and we'll be going back again um uh this year uh going out to Texas and and it's largely to work on private lands. In Texas there's a group that that funds to do research on on private lands. And I mean, most of Texas is in um, private hands. There's, you know, it's a huge state, but there's very little public land in Texas. And uh, so it's been a great, you know, to be able to get into these areas, but uh, they're spread out all over the state. So it's a lot of driving um, and a lot of seeing Texas. And, you know, we spend one one year, we spent like a month in Texas uh, in July and most of the time, our trips are two weeks, two, three weeks, and we, we just kind of have a base camp, uh, Airbnb, and then, you know, we'll work out of that. Then the next week, we'll move to another one and work all the sites in that area. And so you get to kind of be at home in Texas for a little while, and so you get a get a good feel for it. And But because it was, I don't know, it was just, they're just good times in my mind, um, and I learned a lot about the environments in Central Texas, so I wanted this paper to be uh, not the normal kind of stuffy, you know, revision of, you know, X species group, blah, blah, blah. I wanted to put a little bit of that feel into it. And so I wrote it uh, differently. Um, one of the reviewers said it was too colloquial, but uh, I said, uh, you know what, this, is, uh, this was a fun paper. And, you know, let's make it accessible to people and kind of, I wanted to keep that feel um, for it. and. Hopefully it came through.
1: Yeah, I'm in total agreement. I think you definitely accomplished your goal. It's a really nice paper. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Thank you. You know, I've written plenty of papers that are, you know, you're just kind of cutting, you know, it's the format, right? You know, revising this, this species group or whatever. And, um, but this one, yeah, let's say it was like, you know, in my mind, thinking back, it was good times. It was an adventure. Um, you know, I wanted that to come through. And, uh, you know, and read almost more like some of the early, you know, 1900s or literature, some of the early orthopterists, Morgan Hebert or A.P. Morse, Wren, uh, you know, all their papers, whether out in the out west, wherever, you know, their their papers kind of read that way. They're on these trips. And so, yeah, just kind of harken back to that a little bit, too.
1: You accomplished that, and also you accomplished the diagnostic work that you set out to do. Right. Um, right. So, uh, I want to talk about uh, first the reorganization that you did in your paper. Um, we're diving into species groups here, um, and so right. and and we've we've touched upon this concept in other episodes of the podcast. Um, but just for those who might not be so familiar, um, a species group is a, a group of species that are they're they're quite closely related. Um, they could theoretically produce offspring together, but maybe they don't because of some geographic barrier or something like that. Um, So uh, these groupings, they're really useful for taxonomists um, because they're based upon morphology. Um, So you took two other species of melanipus and uh, they were previously in this other species group, uh, Texanus, but you're actually suggesting a a brand new species group, uh, a discolor species group. Um, So you took these species, you put them with your seven new species and you created this Brand new group. Uh, can you talk us through that and what the significance is?
2: Yeah, um, well, back up. So Melanipus itself is a, is a large genus. It's the largest genus of grasshoppers in North America. There's close to 400 species. So we break them up into these species groups uh, because it's a little more manageable to deal with when you're doing revisions, when you're talking about things. Um, if you just want to talk about a group of species, Instead of saying them all, you can say what group they're in. So it is a group of closely related species, and you 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 know, when somebody's talking about them, we talk about the discolor group. Oh yeah, okay, that's the group with the red tibia and the you know the stripe and this and that. Um, and so uh, when Dan, so Dan Audie did a revision of the Texanus group and added a bunch of new species, probably back in 2012, something like that. He did a big paper something like 80 new species of melanopus from North America. And he put discolor in with the Texanus group at that time. And I kind of saw that. And once, I, especially once I started working in Texas a lot, I realized that huh, that's, that's kind of weird because the, t-, and and I'd worked with the Texanus group some in East Texas and they are an early spring group. Um, they're out April, May, June that kind of period and usually when my trips going to Texas are in July they're gone they're they're done for the year and they're you know been their eggs underground at that point and this color is is out and doing its thing in the summer um and I thought that was kind of weird um but then also when you look at the genitalia there's complete different morphology there um this color group has these long kind of tubular uh, valves are, and the, the genitalia are really long compared to a lot of the discolor group and discolored group they're, the valves are arching and definitely separated more. Um, like if you just saw the genitalia, you wouldn't have put those two together at all. Um, and then there's a few other morphological features. Um, but definitely that like the temporal separation was a big thing combined with the the morphology was why I felt they should be separated out.
1: And uh, six of your seven new species are from the Edwards Plateau, which is this really large and ancient plateau in Texas. Um, and as you say in your paper, it's it's really noteworthy because it's an area of high endemism.
2: So the plateau itself is kind of a, a cool area. So there's a when we say high endemism, it means there's a lot of species that are found there and nowhere else in the world. Um, being from Mississippi and and the Southeast, I'm more familiar with the North American coastal plain where, which all of Mississippi lies in, but that province has just been recognized as a global biodiversity hotspot. Um, a, a couple of years ago and I've described a lot of new species of grasshopper from there. Um, but a less, lesser known is the Edwards plateau. I think it's not a large area compared to, you know, the North American coastal plain, but, Um, So high endemism, but also just that there were that many new species of grasshoppers right there, and most of them are all along the Balconies Escarpment, or also known as Texas Hill Country, um, right there along the eastern and southeastern edge of it uh, was was pretty remarkable, I think, Um, and that's where the topography of the plateau gets divided um, a lot. Uh, most of the plateau top is, like you would think, a, a flat kind of tabletop, like a like a plateau. But the, that eastern edge is divided and rolling topography. Uh, some of the rivers, you know, obviously come there and and roll off the plateau and have divided the topography somewhat. Um, so, and it's a gorgeous area, um, rolling topography, open, uh, a lot of cedar trees, but the cedars. There's controversy there whether the cedars should be there or not. Um, I suspect they probably came in as a result of fire suppression. Um, that seems to be the the most logical case. Um, and especially from a biological standpoint. Um, I mean, looking like the grasshoppers there occur in grasslands, right? Savannas, grasslands, and there are all these other cool plants that are that, that way. They, they don't come up in cedar forests, so... Um, I think a lot of the, uh, especially the balconies area that's covered in cedars now probably should be more open.
1: And what does collecting grasshoppers look like?
2: Yeah, yeah. So so it's funny, I uh, uh, have a new employee, uh, Dr. Ray Fisher, um, who works on mites, interestingly, um, but he's gone with me the last year to help, help me catch grasshoppers, because uh, we're also Working on a big North American uh, Melanopus population level phylogeny. Working on that with Lacey Knowles at the University of Michigan, and, and so we're catching you know at least ten individuals of each species from a population for this for the sampling. And so we have to catch a lot of grasshoppers. And when I you know training Ray to do this, you know he's collected mites uh, for a long time. So for lazy sampling, all this other all this other stuff and. And he's like, man, this catching grasshoppers is where it's at. It's like, you're just walking around with a net, chasing grasshoppers. And that's it. That was the great thing. That was when I was an undergraduate and learning this. Like, I mean, you know, I've worked on ants, pitfalls, baits, burlesque, all that stuff. Grasshoppers, you just get a net and you just walk out into a field and you catch them. You don't need traps. You don't, you know, it's great. You're walking around in a sunny place and, you know it's just it's just the best thing um that is you know if i wasn't if it wasn't my job i'd probably be doing it for a hobby so <laughs> um that's that's what it looks like and of course i have help um uh so also part of part of the study like this work we were doing in texas wasn't just grasshopper focused we also were doing pollinators um so i had people catching bees um butterflies uh we did flies as well carrying flies um so we for that we whenever we got to a site we'd set up a carrying trap and and then pick it up when we were done collecting and there are lots of stories about picking up roadkill in texas and and baiting our traps with it and terrible smells um (laughs) but uh even a a liquefied porcupine at one point (laughs) Um, um
1: Nobody, nobody can see the face I just made, but, um,
2: (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, and so, uh, and then also ants. So we, so at all the sites we go to, we're collecting all these different taxa, but everybody knows I'm, you know, looking for grasshoppers. And so, uh, you know, we're all walking around with nets, whatever. And so they're, they're catching grasshoppers for me as well. And, you know, same thing, I'll grab bees, whatever I see, but, um, so, you know, have a field team with me. And we go out and uh, hit our sites. You know, we have a planned route for the day. Usually we get three or four sites in a day because there's just so much driving involved out there. And, um, you know, we go hit a couple sites, Um, you know, usually spend about two hours at a site and making sure we got everything that's there. And, you know, if you're in the field with me, usually about three o'clock means we're going to stop for ice cream and tea somewhere. Um, And in Texas, every little town has a Dairy Queen. So that usually means a Dairy Queen stop for ice cream and tea, which kind of picks you up because, you know, out there, you know, it's still central uh, daytime, but you're further west. So it doesn't get dark till almost 10 o'clock. So you can have long field days. We would put in 14, 15 hour days. And uh, so that three o'clock, pick me up we would like get you through to the next few sites um, until we would get home for dinner. So, yeah. (laughs) So that, you know, it's, it's catching grasshoppers is, you know, walking around with a net and uh, ice cream and tea. (laughs) Not really. We're, I mean, we are doing science, right. But, but we're having fun too.
1: sounds like a great summer to me,
2: (laughs) (laughs) but it is, you know, it's also, you know, central Texas in July and August. So it is brutally hot. Um, and and for me, going from Mississippi, which I'm used to the heat, but it's also heat with humidity, so it's it's, it's different, and I have to be mindful because it's like you, your sweat evaporates out there, and you don't realize that you're too hot. So so that tea is really important.
1: And uh, did your family do any collecting with you?
2: Yeah. So so well. So let me say, my wife, Jennifer Seltzer, also works in the museum here with with me um she runs our screening center and she's also the uh, the fly taxonomist on staff so she would go along these trips as well and uh, uh you know catch the flies and and she would also usually blacklight at night because our former director dr richard brown is a leopardopterist and she studied under him and you know can pin lips and all that really great. So she would b- often blacklight at night and uh usually you know often would stay back and during the day and and spread the lips from the night before and and also sometimes pin the massive amounts of grasshoppers we're bringing in. But also I've done plenty of pinning in the car in the passenger seat of the F150 going down these long straight Texas roads just sitting there pinning grasshoppers. So um yeah, but but yeah, and so so the kids came with us and they often go out to field sites as well with net in hand. Um yeah. Yep.
1: Sounds like a great experience.
2: Yeah, it yeah, it's it's been really enjoyable.
1: Um and once you collected these specimens, uh you did some ID work, um, some diagnoses.
2: I mean other grasshopper, other other subfamilies. So we've got, you know, three to four uh, main subfamilies of grasshoppers in North America, and you know, you think about the slant-faced grasshoppers. They have they make, make noise with their hind femurs. They have these little pegs on their hind femurs that they scratch against their forewings, stridulatory pegs, and that's usually species-specific calls for reproduction. Band-wing grasshoppers they have their flight displays they do with their colorful wings. They have colorful uh, patterns on the inside of their hind femurs that they do this uh, kind of femur tipping and showing off those patterns. So again, and then crackling, they crackle their wings, crepitating. Um, so these other displays, but Melanoplus don't do any of these displays. They uh, just jump on the female, they pounce on the female and, uh, you know, they try to copulate with them. And if it, if it fits, then they reproduce. Um, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, but but generally, right the the shape of the male genitalia is corresponds with usually the length and size of the female um, receiving organ. So, uh, but in those other groups where they have these other cues like the band wings and the slant faces, the genitalia are not useful for taxonomy. So so it's you know different different ways of uh, kind of pre-copulatory or post-copulatory differentiation yeah so 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 in melanopus you you have to talk about the (laughs) genitals um because that's that's how you how you diagnose a lot of them outside of a species group because within a species group externally most of the species look largely the same so you need to dissect the male genitalia because that's easier to describe than the female genitalia um and uh you you need that to get species level diagnosis. So.
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, and there are some some beautiful illustrations um, of the individual species, and then also um, the some images and some illustrations of those uh, reproductive organs in your paper. Um, the illustrations are by Ashley Baker, I believe. That's yes.
2: right. Yep. Yep. Ashley uh, unfortunately has moved on. She took a, a great job at the uh, University of Idaho. Um, but she worked for me for a couple of years and part of the the grant we have with Dan Adi. So if you've ever looked at the first two volumes of grasshoppers in North America, there are tremendous watercolor plates in the middle that Dan did um, to illustrate these grasshoppers and the band wing one is just amazing because he's got the the wing illustrations as well. And when we're doing the third volume, I wanted to be able to carry that forward. Dan is uh, in his eighties now and Uh, Has largely switched to digital illustration, Um, but I wanted to kind of have some of that feel in this third volume. And so part of the grant was to have Ashley train with Dan on illustration. She was an art student here at Mississippi State that we hired early on as a kind of a to produce graphics for our outreach program in the museum. And uh, but she went up to Philadelphia, worked with Dan and Dan came here a few times and. Anyway, she she uh started working with watercolors and and produced those, and she's got a few other ones she's done digitally for some upcoming papers. I'm, I have, um, but uh, yeah, uh, sad to see her go, but she's she was able to parlay this training and her own skill set, obviously, into a, a really nice job doing uh, illustration at, at for the for I think the extension service at University of Idaho, so.
1: Yeah there's, yeah, there's so many um, ways to contribute to uh, scientific discovery and to taxonomy. And I think uh, illustration is sort of an underrated one.
2: Yeah, yeah, I always like to try to have that. It's just it's just eye-catching. I mean, you can have the pictures and we can take great pictures now. Um, but one thing, we, we have another illustrator here in the museum, uh, Joe McGowan, and he always likes to say that illustrations are good because you can emphasize the things you want for people to see or to notice. Um, and also, you can kind of merge things from different specimens, kind of get that overall thing. Because when people see a picture of something, they want it; they think it should look exactly like that, right? And and there's variation in, in within a species, and you can kind of capture that more so in a drawing than you can an individual picture. Um, so you kind of get the overall gestalt of a species or a species group in this case. Um, and so. So, I always like to try to have illustrations and it just kind of, oh, it's nice. And then, you know, I've done some papers where I, I'm no artist, but I've had Joe train me for a while and I can, I can do some things a little bit. And it's always really gratifying when you have a, something published with your own drawings and it's kind of like, oh, look at me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Scientific illustrators are tremendously talented and, and they do, yeah. I think, a really good job, um, including Ashley for sure.
2: Yeah. And we've been incredibly lucky to have period. We had two on staff here in the museum with Joe and Ashley, and Ashley was able to learn from Joe a bit too. So uh, yeah, we're probably not the norm to have two illustrators on staff.
1: That's fantastic. Yeah. And speaking of your museum, um, that's where the types for this project are deposited, right?
2: That's correct. Yeah, Uh, the Mississippi Entomological Museum um, here. It's on the campus of Mississippi State University.
1: I wanna talk about the names of your species uh for a minute because <laughs> there's some great ones. Yeah, please yeah. uh let's let's take a little walk. Like take me through them.
2: Okay. Uh I'll just try to go in order through the paper best I remember. So this color obviously was already described and it that kind of means contrasting color or two colored, something like that. And and when you look at the species, it uh you know it's kind of different colored on top than it is the sides. It's kind of a ashy gray brown on the top and then a tan color on the side and that kind of pattern repeats throughout the body a little bit and that's what i'm guessing the name refers to they actually didn't say in the original description of that um but logically that's that's what it would suggest and then i think the next one in the paper was nelson i i think and because i think that's probably what is the one most closely related to based on genitalia which doesn't always hold in terms of close relatedness but um, Nelson and I named after Willie Nelson famous Texas musician and uh, American icon um because we were in Texas and spent a lot of time in the car we listened to a lot of Texas music uh, Texas theme music um, and you can't do that without listening to Willie Nelson um, and he has a in the in the uh, etymology I mentioned, uh, that we have a little bit of Texas in our souls. Willie Nelson has a song that he wrote called Texas in my soul, uh, which is about Texas basically. Um, and so I thought that was, that was kind of fitting um, to name that species after him. I think next is Kindle which was one Dan Audi described in that big paper a few years back. Um, and then what else we got sustentatus. Uh so that one <laughs> um, means hog tooth. Sus is uh, Latin for, for pig or hog. And dentatus means tooth. And if you come into my office, I have a bunch of hog teeth from a wild boar that I just picked up in the field one day uh, a couple years ago and just laid them on my desk, pulled them out of my pocket and dumped them on my desk. And they've been sitting here for years. People come in. They mess with them. Um, I always they just turn into a thing of question. But one day I was when I was working on the, the plates of the genitalia for the for the species. I didn't have a good name for it. But the as I was cleaning up the photos, the shape of the genitalia reminded me of the shape of one of these hog teeth. I was like, oh look, it's the same shape. And so <laughs> literally that's <laughs> that's how I came up with the name. And so now I'm definitely gonna leave these hog teeth on my desk because I have a story about them, I guess. Um, Corniculatus means uh, like antlered. And so the genitalia of this one species from around Kerr County or Kerrville, Texas, the genitalia look almost like, like antlers, Uh, very multi-pronged and uh, crazy. So uh, that's what that one means. Walker eye is named after the musician uh, Jerry Jeff Walker, who, was a huge texas musician and uh one of his most influential albums was uh recorded at Lucanbach, texas and uh the species type locality is close to lukenbach i tried tried to find uh, specimens in lukenbach to, to set as the type locality um lukenbach's this cool little town i don't know if many people will know it but there's songs about it but it's uh this tiny little town, it's almost just a post office, um, but it's kind of just a lot of culture and uh, came like a, especially towards music, a, a big influential place in central Texas. And, uh, uh, but I couldn't find any specimens of the species there. The, the habitat was just uh, a little too degraded. And, uh, and plus I didn't have access to, to a lot of property there either. So I was just kind of looking on road edges and whatnot. Um, But anyway, so, but the type locality is close to there and uh, named it after J. J. Jeff Walker for his music. And I had listened to his music since, and Willie Nelson's for that matter, since I was a kid. Um, But a lot of his songs are really about central Texas um, and and Texas in general. So uh, I thought that was appropriate. Um, Seemed good. And we listened to the music, you know, that music again, going between field sites and, you know, Kind of made us feel like Texans a little bit. So Malampas Comanche, um, named after the the Comanche tribe, due to their you know that being part of their former range, I always feel that's try you know culturally important to to recognize that um, that and the Tonkawa tribe, um, both both those have species named after them.
1: Just just for fun, um, is there uh, a Walker and a Nelson song that you would recommend that people listen to to sort of get, get in the mind? Oh,
2: oh wow. Um, let's see, Willie Nelson. Wow. Um, so, you know, every field expedition has to start out with Willie Nelson's On the Road Again.
1: <laughs> of course, of course. Yes.
2: But, uh, that's, that's the thing. Um, but you know, my, like, you know, Willie Nelson has been making music forever, almost for decades. And his songbook is, is huge. Um, you know, a really pretty song probably one of my favorites is angel flying too close to the ground. It's a little kind of a sad, sad song, but it's very nice. Great guitar in it. Um, Texas in my soul is good. Um, uh, jerry jeff walker wow there's uh quite a few um i mean he's most famous for writing mr bojangles which isn't necessarily about texas but um uh but hill country rain is a good one um leaving texas is good um it, i like that one a lot and it talks about one last look uh, across the prairie is a line in that and um uh, that's one we play when we leave texas
1: got uh the music all figured out book ended that's right oh no we
2: uh we have uh definitely texas playlist and uh it's you know it's largely them but there's lots of other genres mixed in uh in the car when we're going
1: something that i always forget until i go out to another field season or another field project is that um you know it is kind of like a a unique experience it's like a bubble and so um to have right. little, little right. special stuff like the playlist. that's right and then
2: then when you hear those songs it takes you back to those those times um you know the same thing i mean i mean even specimen labels i can you know when i'm going through the collection pulling out things and i, I see a label and i remember that day and it's like
1: oh oh yeah brings you right back that's right after you spent all this time collecting, identifying, describing, um, why do you think that uh, your new species of grasshopper is important? Like, why, why do we continue to collect, to name, to identify? Right. Why, why does it matter?
2: Um, I'll speak a little more generally, especially coming from the southeast. Um, in Texas, I guess you can still still count as the southeast uh, as well, um, parts of it anyway. Um, but here, here in the South, our grasslands are where most of our, a huge part of our biodiversity are. And most people don't even know we have natural grasslands in the Southeast. Um, you know, I have a friend that's a botanist that uh, talks about the the myth of the squirrel that could go from the Mississippi River to the Atlantic Ocean and never touch the ground. Well, we know now that that's, you know, not true through historical evidence, from quotes from settlers, botanical, you know, biological information. Um, all these cool little plants in the southeast and, and species that are, are, you know, endangered inhabit grasslands. Longleaf pine savannas are grasslands. We have prairies, we have rock outcrops, glades, all these things. But they were some of the first things to be developed because they were already open. You didn't have to clear them. Our Blackland prairies here were open. They were prime. Uh, real estate for cattle and and uh, horse horse farms, and then of course you know they turned under the plow with cotton production, um, and so they were lost early on, and all we have now are these small little fragments. Within the last, I'll say seven years now, I've described close to forty new species of grasshoppers. If we include these seven from the southeast, along, and. 34 of them, probably 35, are grassland inhabitants. So we almost, you know, we're in danger of losing all these species before we even knew they existed, right here in our backyard in Eastern North America. You think, you know, oh, it's North America. We know, you know, most everything here. Well, we don't. The first species I ever described, Melanipus ingrami, came from a cedar glade right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. These cedar glades around Nashville, Uh, are full of endemic plants Um, and botanists have been studying them since the 17, late 1800s. Um, And literally the first step I took in that glade out of the car. I mean, my one foot was out of the car. The other foot was still in the car. A grasshopper jumped up and I was like, my God, what is that? First new species I described. And that's right outside of Nashville, Tennessee, a huge eastern North American city that botanists and biologists have been working in for you know over a century and literally so and that's a grasshopper that's not even I mean you know it's not a small tiny insect um what else is out there to discover so yeah document these things and you know there's still I guess there's controversy recently I've seen about you know naming species after people and 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 how we go about naming things but you know, partly I think you gotta make it fun. Also, Melanopus has over 400 species. Like, you start pulling for names at some point. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think for conservation, I think it's important to, uh, you know, why not put a fun name on something? Um, and tex- Texans love their music. and And the central region of Texas, that hill country of Texas, is one of the fastest growing places in the country between Austin and San Antonio. And I have seen the development coming in places. Like you can tell they're just brand new, you know, all these neighborhoods and mansions. And then right on the edge of people's properties are, are the old barbed wire fences Um, that, you know, that was all probably rangeland, you know, less than 10 years ago. Um, So, you know, anything you can do to help conserve something along the way some of our biological heritage um yeah do it
1: I think that's so well said um what's clear to me uh, doing this podcast is it's like it's like such a moment of joy to name something and so mm-hmm. I think inevitably scientists end up naming species after people and places and things that they care about and so like right. such an interesting glimpse into the lives of the people that work on these specimens
2: that's right. Yeah. I mean, if you look through some of Dan Addy's names, because uh, he's he's described over, I forget what it is, over three quarters of the world's cricket fauna, something wow. like that. Wow. And, you know, tons of grasshoppers as well. And looking through his names, and if you know Dan, you're like, oh, I know where that one came from, or I know the story behind that one. And he often doesn't give his etymologies in his papers. Um, but, but if you know him, you're like, oh. I know the story there so
1: it's special it's just a reminder that um scientists put our full selves into our work and you know that can be that can be a really good thing
2: yeah yeah although sometimes your family (laughs) may not like it but uh when you're on vacation and you're packing your insect net (laughs) oh yeah
1: oh yeah Javon thank you so much uh for talking with me today it's been such a pleasure um, and. I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, the the third volume of the
2: Grasshoppers of North America, Volume Three, and it'll be the Melanoplani subfamily. Phenomenal. And uh, yeah, so yeah, we'll get we'll get there. It's a huge huge undertaking. Probably over it'll be over six hundred species. In wow. It, so yeah.
0: Thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Thank you for having me.
0: Jovan's paper. Diversification deep in the heart of Texas: Seven new grasshopper species is in issue 1165 of ZooKeys. See the episode details for an open access link to the paper, and to learn more about Jovan and his work, you can follow him on Twitter at jovanh. You can also check out his institution's website, including the Mississippi State Moth Photographers Group, a digital guide to the identification of over 1,500 species of moths. It can be found at Moth Photographers Group msstate.edu. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion. If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our patreon at patreon.com/newspeciespod. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at Newspeciespodcast at gmail.com.
1: Yep. All right. Is is there anything else that you feel like you wanted to add or anything we missed?
2: I don't think so. I, I tend to ramble, so it's probably better just to leave it there.
1: <laughs> no, no. Rambling. Rambling is encouraged. <laughs> okay. Rambling is encouraged for sure.